0: Welcome to you. Thank you for joining us this morning. My name is Trevor. I'm the lead pastor here at Risen. And a warm welcome, especially to those of you who are students and kids who are joining us for our family service this morning. Um, every generation grows up, and and if they are responsible, they are always desiring that the next generation would know about the goodness of God and would begin to embody what it means to know God, to love Him, and to love others. And so, kids, if you're here with us this morning, we're still so thankful for you. I want you to know that and we are excited to see what God will do in your life as you prioritize him and his kingdom. Also kids, just I know that Austin said this when he was hosting earlier. There's a sheet that you got when you came in and if you fill that sheet out, all of the fill in the blanks I will say in my sermon Fill it out and grab me after the service, and I've got a lollipop for you. So um, one of my kids told me kids will do just about anything for a lollipop. We'll see if listening to a sermon meets that bar. Uh, All right, so uh, if you've got a Bible this morning, we open up to Ruth. And we will be in the book of Ruth together. This is our second week in a series, what we've called Women of the Bible, where in which we are looking at some of the heroes of the faith who are women in Scripture. And we are um, kind of learning from them about what is it that makes them heroic and how do they serve as examples for all of us. And so last week, if you were here and you joined us, um, then we looked specifically at Rahab. And last week, Rahab is a story that maybe some of you had familiar with, but many of you were unfamiliar with. Rahab was a pagan prostitute who is a hero of the faith and she's a little bit unknown, this morning we'll be looking at Ruth, and we're going to grab her from the women's ministry department where she often lives, um, and we're going to bring her front and center into the service where we will, ex- we will, we will really take a good look at an immigrant pagan um, who, who is an outsider who will teach us this morning about loyalty, about initiative, and about the providence of God. And so that's where we're going to spend our time together this morning. We will look together at the book of Ruth in sections, um, and this is how we will break down our outline this morning. Ruth, as a book, is so rich we could spend... We could just spend a year in the book of Ruth. It's that rich and that beautiful. So this morning, here's how I've chosen to break it up because I want you to leave with the major ideas in the book and the major storyline and the major points. Uh, I think that that's important. So loyalty and then initiative and then providence. We'll begin this morning by talking about loyalty, which will be the first section that we'll look at. Before I even get into loyalty, which is the first point I want to talk about this morning, you need to know the story. So if you've got um, Ruth, you want to open up to that book. It's in the Old Testament. And I will, um, I'll, I'll talk about different verses. I'll move quickly. So if you've got the text in front of you, you can look down and reference as I'm moving through it. But, um, but this is Ruth because you've got to get the story. It's a short story. It's only about 100 verses. It's four chapters in the Bible. And maybe... Um, you may or may not be familiar with Dr. Samuel Johnson, sort of an English poet and uh, and lexicographer who uh, was obsessed with the English language. He's he wrote the first dictionary in English that was sort of comprehensively documented the English language, and he um, just famous as a linguist, as a as a as a poet, as a writer, as an author, as a thinker. Dr. J- Johnson in the 18th century was. Uh, talking before some of his colleagues who were kind of free thinkers and agnostics, and they didn't believe in the Bible. And um, and Samuel Johnson chose to present to them and uh, what, what they thought was an original piece uh, that he had written. And so he read them in this gathering, uh, Ruth. He read them the book of Ruth. And at the end of reading it, I mean, all of these people who were just they were like literature um, icons were, were just, this is amazing. This is incredible. I can't believe you wrote this. It's such a beautiful story. And uh, Samuel Johnson said, yeah, it's the book of Ruth. It's in the Bible. Um, uh, you can find it there. It's been there. You've rejected it, but it's worth your time. So I, I just want you to know this is a it's an amazing, powerful story, and I'll do my best to try to, set, to frame it for our benefit in our short time this morning. The story begins with a family. The family consists of a, a, a man whose name is Elimelech, and Elimelech is married to a woman named Naomi. They live in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. They live in the house of bread in Bethlehem with land and um, and things are going okay for them until a famine happens. And when the famine takes place, they are caught into a position of staying in Bethlehem in the house of bread or they're going to leave. Now they choose to do what would be considered immoral, be wrong, sinful. They leave God's land, they leave God's people, and they travel to Moab. And they go to Moab, um, Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and they have two boys And as they go to Moab, and people are hearing about Elimelech leaving his inheritance behind, his land behind, everything behind to go to Moab, the original original audience who heard this story would go, what are you thinking you don't go to Moab? The reason we know that you don't go to Moab is because the Jewish people thought that Moab was an awful place. Two times in the Psalms, Moab is listed as the sort of the the foot-washing pot of society right that's how like the where you washed your dirty feet that's what they thought about the Moabites it says that in Psalm 60 verse 8 for instance twice in the Psalms and so you hear this story about Elimelech and Naomi and they are Israelites and they leave God's people they leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab you don't go to Moab number one reason you don't go to Moab is God says, if you begin to connect with those who reject me, you're going to start marrying and worshiping other gods. And don't do that. I am your God. I made you. I love you. I know you. You're mine. And so as you hear the story, Elimelech and Naomi go to Moab, and what's the next thing that happens? Well, their sons marry two Moabite women. So now you've got Elimelech and Naomi. They're two boys who have married two Moabite women. And then disaster strikes. Elimelech, we don't know why, dies. Now you've got Naomi, her two boys, and her two daughters-in-law, both Moabites. And into that moment, in chapter 1, verse 5, we discover that both of the boys die. And now you have a new family structure, a very unconventional one, Naomi and her two Moabite daughter-in-laws. Now, you have to understand that as you're hearing this story, especially in the first century, you would have understood that to have a, a group of three widows who have now no husbands and no children would make them socially and economically vulnerable in every way. Like in our society, if you've got skills and you've got money, a little bit of skills, a little bit of money, a little bit of education, you're going to be all right. You can be, kind of, you can be socially mobile if you've got those things. However, in the Bible, what makes you all right is if you have family and land. And these three women have none of that. They have no husband. They have no sons. They're three widows with no land. Naomi living in a foreign country. And this is not good for Naomi because Naomi lost her husband and she's too old to have another. Naomi has no parents above her who could take care of her. She has no husband next to her who could help provide for her. And her sons are now dead and she has no grandchildren either. She can't start a new family she's got nobody in her culture. And so she would be seen, Naomi would be seen as a nobody. Every culture has their nobodies. When you think of nobodies in our culture, I'm not sure who you think about, but every culture has their outcast. Every culture has their nobodies. Every culture creates a group of people or has a kind of several groups of people who says like those people are the nobodies. It's interesting to watch like highlights of the 1960s and 70s and to see these people with like long hair and beards wearing these wild outfits called the hippies. And we look at that and go like, man, those hippies, those are so cool. Much of the hippie style is making its way back into cultural like clothing today. But back when the hippies were hippies, they were considered outcasts. They were considered nobodies. Even if history would find it maybe confusing, every group of people has a nobody, And in Naomi's culture, she and her daughters are going to be nobodies. She's lost everything. She's lost everything. Her name, Naomi, means sweet. And when she goes back to Bethlehem, she'll go back to Bethlehem. When she arrives, she'll say, don't call me sweet. Don't call me sweet. I don't want to hear that my name is sweet. Call me Mara, because Mara means bitter. That's my new name. That's what you call me now. I'm bitter I'm frustrated. I'm angry at what's happened to me and what God has allowed. So, Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws are stuck. And Naomi has a plan, and her plan is to go home. No family, no prospects, no heritage. She's a public disgrace. And so she says to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your people. She says to Orpah and Ruth, her two daughters-in-law, go, just go back to your people. I, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem, but like there's nothing with me. When I go home, they're going to laugh at me. They're going to mock me. They're going to look down on me, especially if I have one of you with me. Like they're going to see that I've got these, my son's married Moabite women. I've got nothing, no land. I'm an outcast. You two girls, you go back. You're still young. You could maybe start a new family. Don't come with me. There's nothing with me, she says in verse 12. Imagine how hard life would be with me, a widow. I'll be with all the other widows, and you'll be two Moabite widows, living in danger. To be a Moabite widow in Jerusalem would have put, sorry, in Bethlehem would have put them in danger. Um, in fact, you, you read as you read the text, you'll discover that there are threats made. And, and, and their protection has to be involved because men would want to be violent to these racial outsiders, these ethnically different people. The women are going to mock you if you come with me. You'll be a, a Moabite in an unfriendly land. So, so you've got to get that context, and it makes a whole lot of sense when in, in chapter 1, verse 14, Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law says, yeah, that's a good point. I'm going to go home. So Orpah leaves in verse 14, and now you've just got a picture of Naomi, and you've got Ruth. And Naomi's like, Ruth, go, go, go. And you get what is probably the most famous text in all of the book of Ruth, which is Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. You get Ruth's response to Naomi. And Ruth says, Naomi, don't don't urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you. Where you go, Naomi, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will become my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is the most famous verse in Ruth, where Ruth tells Naomi that she will go with her. She says this to her mother-in-law. Probably the most, maybe the most powerful, like, verse of commitment from one person to another in all of the Old Testament is from Ruth to Naomi, her mother-in-law. These two widows, she says, out of love and out of loyalty, I'm going to choose the most difficult life. I'm going to go be an immigrant in Bethlehem. I think we can all acknowledge that the life of an immigrant is hard. Immigrants always leave the familiar for the unfamiliar. Some of you here in the church are either immigrants yourselves or you are a child of an immigrant. And so you know that making that decision to leave your people, to leave your land to leave your culture, to leave all of that, to head to a new place is difficult. Ruth is going to leave everything behind, and she is going to have a worse life in every single way from her vantage point. And Naomi tries to send her back. Naomi's like, Ruth, you don't want to go with me. Go, and Ruth says, nope, Your God is my God. Your people are my people. I'm with you. I don't want the gods of my culture. I want your God. The Moabites had a bunch of gods. Everyone had their kind of own gods in Moab. The Israelites were different because the Israelites worshipped Yahweh, God, the only true God. And so she knows, Ruth knows, that what Naomi thinks about God is differently from how she thought about God growing up. But Naomi cares so much for Ruth that she is willing to say, go home, it'll be better for you. And what is it that causes Ruth to say, no, Naomi, I'm with you no matter what? Well, this is talked about kind of endlessly throughout history. And there's no verse that gives you like the clearest indication of what is it that causes Ruth to be so dedicated to Naomi. What is it that causes Ruth to abandon her culture and her gods to trust in God and to have any sort of hope for God's people or faith in God's people. And here's what I think happens. And this is how I would sort of break things down. I I think I'm so deeply moved by By the idea that Naomi, who very much believes in God, so cares about Ruth that she is willing to say to Ruth, Ruth, you go that way. I love you so much. You don't want to come with me. Life is going to be hard. And my suspicion is Ruth has never been loved by anyone quite like this before. I think And believe that the text shows that Naomi loves Ruth before Ruth agrees with her about how worship should be done, about where to live, about anything. And I want to pause and unpack that for a moment because here's why I think that's important. We live in a tribal world that is growing increasingly more tribal, it feels like feels like we got out of some of that, but it feels like it's so ingrained in the way we do things that now we're all siloed off and we have our camps, be they political, be they social, be they class, be they nationality. And what I think is that sometimes Christians have developed a reputation in our world for being people who will say, I will love you if you believe like me. I will love you when you agree with me. Naomi loves Ruth before Ruth makes any commitment to God or to Naomi. She loves her first. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you of the importance of being a Christian and how being a Christian means that it's our call to love people before they think like us or agree like us at all. If you love people only when they think like you, if you love them only once they start to agree with you, if you love them that way, then your faith is not credible. It's tribal. And Jesus himself in Matthew 5 said, You heard it was said. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Isn't that our world today? Love people who think like you. Hate people who disagree with you. And Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You know what everybody does? Everybody loves people who think like them and agree with them. You know what we do? We love people before Any of that happens. We are Christians. We will love you even if you don't believe like we do, even if you don't agree with us. We will love you before you ever take a step close to us. Do you know why? Because God took a step close to us before we ever took a step close to him. Amen? We love those who aren't like us. Does that mean that we, like, abandon our convictions? No. We don't abandon our views of God. We believe that what we believe about God is true, and we will share the good news of Jesus anytime you give us an opportunity. Sometimes we'll share it even when you're not asking us to. And if someone comes along and says, Christians, they shouldn't talk about how their views of God are better than everyone else's. All you're doing is telling us that your view of God is better than ours. It's unavoidable. We all think that if everyone agreed with us, the world would be better. That's normal. Here's my question. How does your belief system inform you about how you should treat people who disagree with you? If you hate your neighbor for being smug and you look down on them, you're just being smug. Ruth is loved by Naomi before she loves her radically. Few things are as powerful as friendship when it comes to helping people see the truth about who Jesus is. You notice this? Ruth does not trust in God because of prosperity. Imagine that. Think about that for a second. What what has God given Naomi that might cause Ruth to go, I want what you have? She lost her husband. She lost her sons. She's lost everything, her land, her inheritance. Everything is bad, and she's like, you want to come with me? I'm a bitter woman. I'm about to go home. I'm about to be bitter. Everything's terrible. It's going to be terrible. You want to come? You don't want to come. Go home. And for some reason, Ruth goes, you're the one, and your God is the one Why? It's because of the way that Naomi loves Ruth. It's that kind of friendship that exists. It's the kind of friendship that we need. Our number of close friends in American society has declined considerably from 30 years ago. 33% 30 years ago of U.S. adults said that they had 10 or more close friends, not counting relatives. That number is less than 13% today. We're friendly with lots of people. We got all kinds of friends, followers, acquaintances, people we brush shoulders with. But being friendly to lots of people and having friends are not the same thing. You can be friendly with people, but what you need are good friends. Friendliness will not get you through the most difficult times that you will face. But friendship takes time and commitment. If you've got friends and you've got a lot of time but no commitment, and here by commitment I mean, like, I'll spend a lot of time with you, but only when things are easy, you don't have friendship. At the same time, if you've got commitment but no time, You can't grow a friendship. You can maintain one. You can have people in your life who you went through tough stuff with, and you can pick up where you left off. But if you want to grow and develop friendship, you cannot do that without time and a commitment to one another to go through difficulty together. You get time plus commitment plus sacrificial love plus Christ-like love. You get something powerful. So if you're here this morning and you are like, I don't have friends you need some? Ask God for some? Show up. Look for opportunities to connect with those around you. And take a risk. Invite someone out to coffee. Look at the people that God has put in your life right now. Maybe in your community group. Maybe on one of our serve teams. Maybe at a men's or women's event. And take a risk. Loyalty. All right. Second, initiative. So after Ruth throws herself and says, I'm not going anywhere apart from with you, then um, they go back to Naomi's hometown in chapter 1, verse 19. And the first thing that Ruth does is she gets right to work providing for her mother-in-law. Chapter 2, verse 2. She has tremendous humility. She becomes, Ruth becomes the breadwinner for Naomi by gleaning. Austin already spoke about this earlier. Gleaning was the process where God said to his people, when you are gathering the crop, when you're gathering the fruit and you leave a piece here and you leave a piece there, don't go back and make sure you get all of it. Like look back and go, I missed that spot. Leave it so that those who are poor and on the outskirts would be able to come and get it. And so Ruth finds her work in gleaning, and she happens, you'll see that in chapter 2, verse 3, she just so happens to be gleaning at the field of a man named Boaz. And when Boaz sees her, he finds out who she is and what she's doing, and he is amazed. In chapter 2, verse 11, you see this. He's amazed that she gave up everything for her mother-in-law. And she's amazed that an Israelite man would be nice to her. And so she comes home in verse 19 of chapter 2 and tells Naomi, Hey, I, I, I was gleaning in the field with this guy named Boaz. And Naomi says, Boaz? That, that guy is our kinsman redeemer. Here's what a kinsman redeemer is really quickly. I know some of you already know this, but for those of you who don't know what it is, let me explain it. Um, If you were living in Bethlehem and you sold your land and gave up your inheritance and, for instance, went to Moab and you came back into the land, someone else now owns your land, but God provided a way where if you had a family member who had enough wealth, that family member could, on your behalf, Purchase the land that you uh, that you used to own. You had to sell it back to a family member to redeem the lineage of the people, and so a kinsman redeemer had to be a close relative. One had to be had to be financially available enough to to, to buy the land back, and three they had to be willing to do it. Not every you know not every person's going to want to do that. So Naomi had lost her land when she had went to Moab. And so to redeem Naomi meant that Boaz would have to both purchase back the land and he would have to marry a Moabite, this particular Moabite, widowed Moabite immigrant Ruth. That's the only way to establish the family line again. But why on earth would Boaz spend any money purchasing back land for a Limalex family that left why would he even consider marrying ruth a moabite immigrant well the short answer is because she proposed to him that's what happens she 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 makes herself, she cleans herself up so that she doesn't look like a widow in mourning, right? And then she's so assertive that she goes to him at the threshing floor where lots of people would be during the threshing time. And she uncovers his feet, feet, he wakes up, and then in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, we see this is what happens. Uh, Boaz wakes up and says, who are you? And Ruth said, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you're a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Verse 11, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. She proposes. Do you see how insane this is? She's a Moabite in Bethlehem, and she wakes up Boaz, and she says, you need to do what your God, our God now, says that you should do. Marry me. Redeem us. And he goes, yes, I will. You love Naomi. You're amazing. Ruth's amazing. And then he does this thing. He ends by calling her a worthy woman in verse 11. That word, worthy woman, is found uh, three times in the Old Testament, once in Ruth, Um, uh, Oh, sorry, four times in the Old Testament. Once here in Ruth, worthy woman. And the other three times in the Proverbs, twice most notably in Proverbs 31. Ruth is a Proverbs 31 woman. And when you think Proverbs 31 woman, you probably don't think about the Moabite immigrant who widowed, who left everything for her mother-in-law, was the breadwinner, took on the role of gleaning in her home, and then proposed to her future husband. Boaz calls her a worthy woman and this is her reward. He says, yes, I'll do it. And she changes Boaz. She changes and patches Naomi's story because she takes initiative. Too often, young people particularly, but this applies to all of us, when we get stuck, we begin to go, God, I don't know what to do and then we do nothing. Don't do that. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, start doing something. Do what God puts in front of you. Take that that job that you're like, I think I'm too proud for that job, but it's the only job in front of me. Take it and do it with humility and work hard at it. Do you see the humility of Ruth? She's got an opportunity to glean. She's going to glean. She's going to care for Naomi. She's got an opportunity to marry Boaz. She proposes to him. It's certainly not traditional, but it's amazing. Be faithful with what's in front of you. Always look for ways to serve the Lord with the opportunities in front of you, especially while you're waiting. American statesmen. Bernard Baruch was asked uh, who he thought was the greatest personality of our age. And at 94 years old, he gave this answer. He said, the, 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 um, the greatest personality of our age is the person who does their job every day. That's like a, he, is that heroes? Oh, it's the person who does their It's the mother who has children and gets up and gets them breakfast, keeps them clean, and sends them off to school. It's the man who keeps the streets clean. The unknown soldiers, million of them. You know who the heroes are. It's the ordinary people doing ordinary work in ordinary faithfulness. Are you? Are you only waiting for God to make something miraculous happen, or are you willing to work in the waiting? Third and finally, providence. This is how the story ends. Ruth chapter four, verse 13. Let's look at this text. This is the end of Ruth. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son, Then the women said to Naomi, listen to what the women, the Bethlehem women say to Naomi about her Moabite immigrant widowed daughter-in-law. They say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. Next verse, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. They say they say Ruth is better than seven sons. Seven in the Bible is the perfect number. They might as well be saying Ruth is better than an infinite number of sons. And if you read the Bible, you know that having sons, big deal. And these Bethlehem women are like, you know what's better than infinite sons? That daughter-in-law, Ruth. She's a hero. She gives birth to a child, and Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Continue on, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth becomes King David's great grandmother. And a relative, Ruth is obviously of Jesus. The story begins with Naomi losing her husband and her sons. And the story ends, and she's holding her grandson. There are only two books in the Old Testament written after women. Only one book in the Old Testament written after a woman who's a Gentile. It's Ruth. And 2,500 years later, we are studying her story. Is anyone going to study my story 2,500 years from now? No. Zero chance anyone's talking about me 2,500 years from now. But this immigrant poor Moabite is a hero because she is faithful and she is persistent and she is loyal and she is bold and she is courageous and she left everything to follow God practicing long obedience in the same direction. One foot in front of the other and God uses her. This woman is amazing. But the point of the book is not her. How is this about God's providence? In the book of Ruth there is no miracle, there are no dreams, there are no visions, God never steps in and speaks, there are no big answers to prayers that we see, no dramatic events, all we see in Ruth is ordinary hard stuff. And Ruth, the book of Ruth reminds us that in ordinary hard stuff, God is still working. I don't care what's going on in your life right now, God is still doing A million things for his glory and for your good, even when you can't see it. Even when it appears that God's not listening, he is still working. You think Naomi knows what God is up to when she calls herself bitter? No. She is empty. She actually says, I'm empty. I've got nothing. And she just got Ruth standing next to her. Think about that. Naomi's like, I've got nothing. And Ruth is like standing there like, I guess I'm Nothing. She ends up becoming the hero of the story because Naomi couldn't see that what God was going to do, he was going to do through Ruth. Some of you right now are sitting here this morning and you are certain things are not going to work out because you can't see what God is doing right now in the ordinary. But Ruth just so happened onto the field of Boaz. She didn't just happen there. This is God's providence Christians don't speak of luck. We don't believe in luck. We believe in the provident hand of our loving and good God. We all know that when we're driving, we have blind spots. And we're taught when driving to check our blind spots all the time because blind spots symbolize the things that we can't see. God works outside of what we can see. Did anybody ever imagine that a cross would be a symbol of victory? Naomi's thinking, God has left me, but Ruth hasn't. Ruth is there by God. The book of Ruth isn't ultimately about Ruth. Ruth points beyond herself. Ruth left everything for Naomi. She became an outsider. She suffered. She was despised. She was rejected. Who does that sound like? This is what God has done for all of us. God desires not just obedience, he desires friendship with us. God doesn't just say obey me, he demonstrates loyalty and initiative. God says I'm going to come close to you, I'm going to spend time with you, I'm going to die on a cross for you, and I'm going to do it before you ever take a step in my direction. Jesus in John 15, 15 says to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Ruth demonstrates God's friendship, and you will never be like Ruth until you can become like the one that Ruth points to, Christ. And we can never be like Christ until we recognize our need for Christ. I don't know where you're at or what you're going through, but I know God is still working. And I know that God's desire is relationship with you. And I know that God is again and again trying to point out to you, trust me, love me, I'm here for you. He points us to the cross as a place where we might look and see him saying, that's what I did for you so I could be reconciled to you. He loved us first. He showed loyalty to us first. He took initiative first. And he is working in the ordinary hard stuff that you're facing right now. So look through the book of Ruth. and Don't keep your eyes on Ruth. Look to the one who Ruth points to, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it has been to spend time with Rahab last week, and then Ruth this week, and both of them are just pointing us to You, to Your faithfulness, to Your care, to Your hand. We confess to You, Lord, that we, uh, Lord, we don't, we don't love like Ruth. We're not good friends the way we're supposed to. We often don't take initiative. We often don't trust you. Ruth left left everything familiar and trusted you. And some of us, if we're real honest, our hands are gripping tightly to some things right now that are not you. Lord, would you help to open our hands by first helping us to see your love for us? the way that you were despised and rejected and outcast, the way you entered into our world in kind of an ordinary manger. There were tons of mangers, only one throne, and God, you chose the manger. Help us to see you show up in the ordinary, to see the ways that you're answering our prayers in the ways we don't know it yet. Help us to trust you. Would you provide us the friendship that we need Would you help us in faith take the initiative that we need? Would you help us to trust in your providence and care? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.